Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Your Governor Kathy Hochul this week signed six bills into law to protect abortion rights and support reproductive health care providers in the state. The measures are in response to an anticipated decision from the U.S. Supreme Court that would overturn the 1973 abortion rights decision, Roe v. Wade. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. Hochul says she expects the high court to overturn Roe in the next couple of weeks. She predicts it will be a disaster for women in the United States. The sky is on the verge of falling literally in the next week or two. That is a very real possibility, and that's why we're here today. I have three messages regarding the persistent assault on women's rights and a woman's right to determine and make her own decisions about her own body. And they are simple messages. Not here, not now, not ever. The new laws protect the right to an abortion for patients both from New York and from states where the procedure would be banned if Roe falls. They include prohibiting the state from extraditing a patient or a health care practitioner to another state to face abortion-related charges if the procedure was conducted in New York. The state will also not have to honor a subpoena request from another state if it relates to abortion services legally performed here. And health care professionals can't be charged with professional misconduct or be denied medical malpractice insurance for performing a legal abortion. Hochul says the state budget already includes $25 million to support abortion care facilities in New York and $10 million to beef up security. The governor says the anticipated increase in demand from out-of-state patients is already happening. She says Planned Parenthood in western New York is seeing an influx of patients from neighboring Ohio, where the procedure would be limited to the first six weeks of a pregnancy if Roe is overturned. That's just the beginning, my friends. That is just the beginning. The legislature also approved a measure to add even more funding for abortion services, but Hochul says she's not ready to sign that into law at this time. Leaders of the legislature also spoke, including Senate leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins. She says the bill signing ceremony brings mixed emotions. While she's happy that New York is acting to preserve a woman's right to choose, she says she's aggravated that the fight for those rights has to happen again. Stewart-Cousins disclosed that as a teenager in 1970, the year abortion became legal in New York, she became pregnant with her first child. I didn't know anything about the legislature. I didn't know how that happened, to be honest. All I knew is that I was pregnant and I had a choice. New York updated the 1970 laws and codified the abortion rights in Roe v. Wade into state law in 2019. This year, Hochul and supporters in the legislature wanted to go further. They wanted to pass a constitutional amendment. It would guarantee those rights and protect them against any future federal attempts to outlaw the procedure in all states. But that measure was not approved. Despite that, Governor Hochul is airing campaign ads promoting her efforts to pass the amendment. 
The Republican candidates want to strip it away. But Kathy Hochul won't let that happen. She's working to amend the state constitution. Hochul, answering questions from reporters after the bill signing ceremony, says she still wants to pass a constitutional amendment. She says the measure got bogged down in the Senate and Assembly over its exact wording. Hochul did not rule out an agreement on it before the end of the year, but she says as of now, she expects it won't be fully resolved until 2023. That would mean the earliest the measure could go before voters would be 2025. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government, politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartog. Well, the primary election coming quickly now, Alan, and the Democrats who are running for the governor's office faced off in their final debate before the primary. Once again, you saw the frontrunner, Kathy Hochul, being attacked by her challengers, U.S. Representative Tom Swazi and New York City's elected public advocate, Jumani Williams. One of the major areas that they went after her on, and we've heard this already, and she even spoke to you about it, was her previous support from the NRA. She comes from a district in the Buffalo area where it's conservative, and she said she had evolved, and the issue was not what she did in the past, but the fact that she's passed new, stricter gun control legislation. From the analysis I've seen, she seemed to come out of it relatively unscathed and looks to be cruising toward possible victory. Do you think she'll pull it off? What do I really have left to say after your very good analysis, uh, David? The the answer is she's the front runner, and if I'm not mistaken, she's going to be the winner, and there are others in the race perhaps to enhance their own names, their potential. Nevertheless, right now, based on the years that I have been doing this, I don't see it happening uh, that she could lose it. Now, a lot of people have had to eat those kinds of words in the past, but I think that she has played her cards carefully, correctly, and she seems to be fearless. Now, when I say that, I say, you know, she had no problem coming on with me and defending herself and putting her position on the line. I don't see her losing to anybody who's out there right now. Yeah, you spoke with Blair Horner. Uh, New York Public Interest Research Group this week, NYPERG, and he spoke about the sort of good, bad, and ugly of the end of the session. When it got to the ugly, some of the conversation centered around transparency. Governor Hochul told you in a conversation at the budget time that the way to get that negotiation done and get everything on the table is to do some of that negotiation behind closed doors and Of course, that's what you and Blair all these years have been railing about, the secrecy in the negotiative process. Well, that's not going to change. You know, you don't advance your moves before you have to make them. And that's who she is. She's a very bright woman. She has been around for a while. She knows how the game is played. And where we used to rail, as you say, about three men in a room or three people in a room now, including women, The game is played so that you enhance all your potential chances by not taking risks, by doing what is prudent in terms of political operating. 
And that's what she's doing. I have great respect for her now. Another interesting issue you discussed with Blair Horner, Allen was the fact that in legislation, in the budget, was that the SUNY campuses across the state were going to have polling sites for students where they could vote for the first mm. time, no longer by absentee ballot. I thought it was interesting that Blair said, quote, this could be a sleeper issue upstate in terms of how those college kids could swing elections. Well, there's no question. I mean, it doesn't take that many votes to win an election. A lot of people don't come out. A lot of people don't vote, particularly in this kind of a political year. So if you are able to mobilize the existing student power, you can win an election not only for the big seats, you know, the Assembly and the Senate, but also for all of the other political positions that exist in a town or a county. So this could be a game changer. We have heard that in the past when students started to vote. It turns out it takes a great deal to get somebody out of their pajamas into their jeans and over to an electoral place if they can find it. Legislative Gazette Political Observer, Alan Chartop. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustino. Amid a national debate over new gun control measures, county lawmakers in New York want firearm retailers to display warning signs. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas reports. The Albany County Legislature introduced a local law Monday night to educate people on the public health and safety risks associated with firearms. The Albany County commitment to ensuring a safe society, or access, would require a warning sign displayed at all firearms dealers indicating the increased risk of violence associated with firearms, as well as contact information for the Albany County Mobile Crisis Team and the National Suicide Hotline. 30th District Democratic Legislator Dustin Reedy sponsored the measure. What local IF does is it requires any place that sells weapons or firearms to post a warning sign, letting folks know that you know the dangers that firearms pose, and this warning will be required um, to be given out if you get a gun license, and uh, will be given out when you purchase firearms. Reedy says failure to display the warning label may result in imprisonment of not more than 15 days, a fine of not more than $1,000, or both. Also Monday night, the Democratic Caucus of the Dutchess County Legislature introduced a gun warning resolution. Yvette Valdez-Smith is minority leader. Now this resolution has a very similar one that was passed recently in Westchester County, and it does require for signage to be posted in all areas in which a firearm can be purchased here in Dutchess County. We believe that gun violence is a public safety issue. It is an urgent public safety issue, and we're not going to sit idly by while anybody or anyone can be hurt by gun violence. We believe this measure can be worked on in a bipartisan way. This is why we introduced it yesterday on the floor, but we did not walk on the resolution. What we did was we introduced the bill so that we could work on it in a bipartisan fashion. 
we Democrats in the Dutchess County Legislature, we are in the minority. So we would need votes from the Republican side as well in order to make anything pass. Smith believes there will be enough Republican support to pass the measure. David Petronas is a federally licensed firearms dealer who operates a gun shop in Saratoga County and promotes gun shows in New York State. I would not be in favor of this rule, legislation, whatever they're proposing, of putting signs on guns like uh, uh, warning notices. I mean, the obvious fact is, there it is. It's a gun. So, warning, do not touch unless experienced. But I don't think we need a sign for that. That's why we have people behind the counter who explain this to people when they come in to buy something. Petrona says responsible gun shop owners size up and screen customers and thinks New York gun laws are pretty tough already. There are people now who come in and they just want a gun. I mean, there are 70-year-old, 80-year-old little old ladies. I really think I need a pistol. Now, they're not going to be able to get that because we have such a thing as a pistol permit here in New York State, and it takes quite a while to get this pistol permit right now, seeing that everybody's backlogged. Every month, the background check outdoes itself in thousands and thousands and thousands of background checks every single month. Reedy thinks the labeling law will make a difference. If this does save just one life, uh, it'll be successful. When you look at gun violence, it's not just mass shootings that are happening. But gun violence is a pervasive and constant threat in this country. And in fact, you know, gun, gun deaths is the number one cause of death to children over one years old uh, here in the United States. Tracy Fountain, who volunteers with the New York chapter of Moms Demand Action, says the proposed local laws represent another step in the right direction. Access to firearms in someone's household triples the suicide risk for every member of that household. And it also increases risk of unintentional shooting by a child if a child comes across that firearm. That happens just under one time every day in this country on average. That's too much. Albany County's access law is being referred to the Law and Public Safety Committees for further review. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. The three Democratic candidates for New York's lieutenant governor debated this week. The Legislative Gazette's Ian Pickus with more. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. This month, the Alzheimer's Association. The three Democratic candidates for New York's lieutenant governor debated this week. The Legislative Gazette's Ian Pickus with more. Former Hudson Valley Congressman Antonio Delgado has only been in office since May 25th, but he'll have to fend off two challengers in the June 28th primary if he wants to stay on as New York Governor Kathy Hochul's second lieutenant governor. Wednesday's Spectrum debate may be the only time on stage together for Delgado, Anna Maria Archila, who's running with New York City public advocate Jumani Williams, and former New York City Council member Diana Reyna, Long Island Congressman Tom Swazi's running mate. Given the fact that Delgado is only in the role because former Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin resigned after pleading not guilty to federal fraud charges this spring, the candidates were asked about their approach to ethics in government. Here's Delgado. 
Well, I have a track record uh, trying to make sure we create accountability, transparency uh, in our electoral system. I supported H.R. 1 uh, when I was in Congress, um, which would create public uh, finance campaigns, which would stop the revolving door of members of Congress joining lobbyists. I had a bill that I introduced in there that would also create uh, in SEC reports, making sure that we know who the lobbyists were and who they were giving to. Uh, I think that same uh, approach needs to be brought to the state level. Rayner responded. I know that there's a need for continuous training on conflicts of interest. Uh, when someone's going to be a criminal in politics, they have no business being in politics. Uh, I have seen uh, what has been uh, many colleagues go through what have been uh, criminal activities. I have seen Albany, the corruption that has continued to plague Albany. This is what uh, voters want corrected. Archila took the opportunity to go on the offensive. Actions speak louder than words. Both of my opponents have accepted money from industries that dominate the debate in Albany. Antonio, if you don't know the person who has spent a million dollars on behalf of your campaign, you should tell him to stop. You should stop accepting money from real corporate don't landlords that are the ones who are raising the rent. And both of you should make sure that you don't have conflict of interest. I am the only person in this, on this race who has from day one said that I will not take money from millionaires. I will not take money from corporate PACs. I will not take money from real estate developers because that actually corrupts our democracy and drowns out the voices of people. Among many other topics, the candidates were also asked about how they would approach bail reform and crime, which a new Siena Research Institute poll shows is a key concern among registered voters across the state and party lines. Archila. I think that we need to protect the changes that we make that allow us to end a history of, of mass incarceration of black and brown and poor people, and we actually need to do the things that keep people safe. Jumani Williams and I put together a very comprehensive plan that calls for um, essentially what New Yorkers have asked. 66,000 New Yorkers were asked the question of what to do about public safety. And they said, invest in affordable housing, invest in mental health services and respectful policing. I agree with them. Here's Reina. Thank you, I would fix bail reform. I support what is the opportunities to be able to ensure that no one languish, languishes in jail. Uh, but what is also true is that the issues that we see here today are, is a revolving door of criminals. The opportunity is to see lawlessness in the streets. Uh, the uh, criminals have more rights than the victims. And Delgado. When it comes to repeat offenders being let back into the very communities uh, that we're trying to protect, uh, that is problematic. When you have individuals who have uh, violent priors, but in the case before the judge, is not before the judge with a violent crime, um, you are handcuffed if you're the judge to figure out how to best deal with this individual, again, with the mindset of how do you protect the community uh, from harm. But let's be clear, too, there are underlying conditions in communities that give rise to crime. The lieutenant governor and governor run separately in the June 28th primary. Early voting runs for 10 days starting June 18th. I'm Ian Pickus. <laughs>
The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency proposed new health advisory levels this week for two pervasive PFAS compounds. The federal agency recommended health advisory levels of 0.004 parts per trillion for PFOA and 0.02 for PFOS. Those levels are far below EPA's current health guidance level of 70 parts per trillion and New York's maximum contaminant levels of 10 parts per trillion for the compounds. Elevated PFAS levels have been linked to various ill health effects, including forms of cancer. In recent years, communities across the Northeast have confirmed local contamination, hooked up alternate water sources, and worked to track potential health problem patterns. To learn more about the proposed thresholds and how it could affect policy in New York, the Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard spoke with Rob Hayes, Director of Clean Water and Environmental Advocates, New York. EPA confirmed that there is no safe level of exposure to PFOA or PFOS in drinking water. The new health-based guidelines that they proposed are so close to zero that they're actually below the levels that we can currently detect in drinking water right now. So really, wherever these chemicals are detected in drinking water, there is a concern to human health. EPA's advisory level was 70 parts per trillion. New York a couple of years ago, lowered its advisory level to 10 parts per trillion, but we're talking about 0.004 parts per trillion, 0.02 parts per trillion for PFOA and PFOS. So is this going to upend all of the, uh, I guess you can call it progress that the state has made over the last couple of years to try and regulate these compounds? So I think there's a few important things to mention here. I think first is that EPA's levels are just guidance levels right now about what amount of these chemicals in drinking water is safe. What New York did a few years ago in setting maximum contaminant levels at 10 parts per trillion is saying, okay, above this level, the water utility is required to clean up their drinking water and remove this contamination so there isn't a risk to public health. Um, but as we've seen over the last few years, as those standards have been implemented, there are a lot of water utilities that are detecting these chemicals below par 10 parts per trillion, but still now in a concerning range based on these new EPA health guidelines. You know, I think about 700 water utilities across the state have found PFOA or PFOS in their drinking water, but only about 200 of them have been required to clean up that drinking water. That leaves many, many New Yorkers, possibly millions of New Yorkers, exposed to chemicals that could make them sick when they turn on the tap. So the big question now is, will Governor Hochul's administration respond to this new EPA science? Uh, will they propose strengthening New York standards for PFOA and PFOS, dropping them as close to two parts per trillion as possible, the lowest level we can reliably detect, uh, and regulating other PFAS in drinking water as well? You know, it's just not PFOA and PFOS that we should be concerned about. There are thousands of chemicals in the PFAS family. We need to address all of these chemicals if we're going to fully protect public health. These compounds are pervasive. I mean, they're everywhere. Could you help explain how exactly widespread these chemicals are? You're absolutely right that they're everywhere. Almost every American has PFAS in our blood, which is extremely concerning. Uh, they're found in so many products that we use every single day in nonstick pans and packaging and clothing. Uh, you know, it's it's everywhere, as you said. And New York State has been taking steps in recent years to start to ban these chemicals in the use of products so that we turn off that tap and stop them from migrating into our drinking water. 
But of course, there's already been a lot of contamination in our drinking water, and that has to be a priority for New York to make sure that when New Yorkers turn on the tap, clean water comes out. That water is safe to drink for all of our state residents. And that's where we hope Governor Hochul and her administration will really respond to this new science and say, all right, it's time for New York to strengthen our standards on PFOA, PFOS, and other PFAS as well. So the EPA has proposed these very low advisory levels for PFOA and PFOS, but as we've seen with the change of administrations, the recommendations or the actions of the EPA can kind of blow with the wind. So is there a chance that if powers change in a couple of years that this would be rolled back or it wouldn't be acted upon? You know, it's always a potential. And I think that's where New York's leadership on this issue is so important. Uh, You know, we really set the standard for other states and even the federal government in terms of how we're going to protect New Yorkers from PFAS. And in fact, you know, there's a great example. Governor Hochul's administration actually in the next three days faces a deadline to regulate 23 more PFAS chemicals in drinking water. Many states have never attempted to regulate these PFAS before. We will really be setting the standard for how to protect public health from these chemicals. And so Governor Hochul now has the opportunity to say, we're going to set these standards at the lowest levels possible to provide New Yorkers that full protection for their health. I want to speak about this recent lawsuit that was thrown out by a judge in New York. 3M had sued the state against its 10 parts per trillion MCLs for PFOA and PFOS. Uh, Do you anticipate more lawsuits over these even lower numbers? Oh, the chemical industry will always try to avoid responsibility for the pollution that they have caused. That's exactly what this lawsuit based, you know, brought by the chemical company 3M was all about. They don't want to pay for the fact that they have poisoned people. And we were so pleased to see that the Albany Supreme Court said, no, we are not going to get rid of New York's drinking water standards for these chemicals uh, so you can avoid you know, the responsibility to, to take take responsibility for the problem that you've caused. So fortunately, uh, you know, New York's drinking water standards will continue to clean up our water. Um, but absolutely, the chemical companies are not going away and they will fight every new standard tooth and nail because they know that ultimately they should be the ones that are held responsible. They should be the ones that bear the cost uh, of the contamination in our drinking water. So what's next for EANY and the advocacy work that it does in the next few weeks well, as I, was, as I was mentioning a bit ago, uh, in three days, Governor Hochul's administration has a deadline to set new drinking water standards for 23 PFAS chemicals. Uh, these standards are really going to be nation-leading, or potentially nation-leading, in terms of how we're protecting public health from these forever chemicals. So we hope that Governor Hochul's administration sets the lowest levels possible, down to two parts per trillion, uh, and really make New York a national leader on this issue. Um, that'll then kick off a public comment period. So New Yorkers will be able to weigh in about, you know, whether the standards that the governor proposes really do protect public health. And we're really looking forward to engaging in that public comment period once those comments come out. That's Rob Hayes, director of Clean Water at Environmental Advocates NY, speaking with the Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard. 
that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2224. Or just listen on the web at wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.